Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Tom Wheeler, Executive Director of EPIC, the Environmental Protection Information Center. And this week, we are talking about a problem that uh, EPIC has worked on a little bit in the past, but I'm excited to learn more about, and that is trespass cannabis production and its impacts on our environment, particularly the use of toxicants like really gross uh, pesticides that are often employed in these trespass cannabis grows. So I have two great experts joining me here for this episode. We have Murad Gabriel, the regional wildlife ecologist at the U.S. Forest Service. Hey, Murad. Hi. Good afternoon. And Ivan Modell, the associate ecologist at the Integral Ecology Research Center based out of Blue Lake, California. Hi, Ivan. Hi, Tom. Good afternoon. All right. I'm so glad to have both of you uh, on today's show. Um, you are both experts on trespass campus production. And first, let's kind of try to clarify what we're talking about here, because this isn't necessarily, you know, what we might think about when we think about cannabis in Humboldt County. Um, Ivan, do you want to like give a, a brief explainer about what trespass cannabis is and how it might differ from regulated or other kind of gray or black market cannabis? Sure. Uh, so the trespass cultivation that we're talking about, this isn't cultivation that happens on private lands at somebody's home or in a greenhouse. Uh, this is cultivation that happens deep into forested areas. Uh, it happens on national park land or national forest land, Bureau of Land Management land. Uh, this is cultivation where people are essentially backpacking in large quantities of supplies and they are growing cannabis unbeknownst to anyone. Um, nobody knows that it's out there. They're hiding their locations and there's a, uh, there's a high quantity of pesticides that they're using in these areas so that they can deter a lot of the local wildlife because this is a really like unregulated kind of area, right? There's a lot of wildlife out there. There's deer, there's a lot of rodents. It's not the structured uh, cultivation settings that you would see in kind of a private land area. So the environmental impacts can be really, really heavy because they are clearing a lot of the land in order to open up space and light for a lot of this cannabis plant production. Uh, and they're, you know, like we had mentioned, applying large quantities of really, really highly concentrated pesticides. And a lot of these pesticides that they're using, they're not just uh, regular over-the-counter pesticides that you can get at an Ace Hardware. They use those as well, but some of these pesticides are very, very highly toxic. They're highly concentrated. They're illegal for use in the United States and Canada and they're trafficking in these pesticides from other locations and using it um, you know, with their cannabis plants for the, their cultivation. So as you say, you know, this is never legal. This is wholly illegal business, right? You're going on to federal land or large private landowner land and you're, you're, you're growing weed. Um, and you've also said that they can use chemicals that are banned in the United States, not for sale in the United States. So this might give us kind of a character study of, of the folks who are, are doing this. What, what do we know? Who are the type of people who um, will engage in trespass cannabis production? Back to you, Ivan. Uh, so for this one, I'm gonna hand it over to Dr. Gabriel for, cause he's with the, the law enforcement side of it as well. All right. So, um, you know, that's a great question in regards to who are these characters that are performing these clandestine activities? So um, as 
Ivan alluded to that a lot of this cultivation, it's clandestine. So it's illegal in nature. This is not something where, you know, for the, we're a land management agency and our sister agencies like BLM or National Park Service, et cetera, these land management agencies, uh, uh, it's, it's outside of the scope of our agency's mission. It's outside of the scope of what Congress has uh, mandated for us in regards to management or conservation or protection of these lands. And it's outside of the scope of what the public has addressed. So no matter what, and when we talk about cultivation, it's irregardless of the plant itself, it's just the cultivation, the act itself. So the, the plants are being cultivated and we, we term, uh, there's been this loose term of cartels being out there. What we've stated is that these are drug trafficking organizations. So these are clandestine activities uh, for these drug trafficking organizations that are utilizing the public lands to cultivate as a their, their poly fiscal syndicate in order to supplement additional resources or whether it is a, another deleterious clandestine activities outside of public lands as a support mechanism. So it's not the source. A lot of these organizations, it's not like this is their only bread and butter. This is uh, just like any type of organization, um, diversification. Uh, so this is their d diversification and profiteering. Unfortunately, it's on the backs of the public and also to the burden of the agencies that are, are, are mandated to steward these public lands. So um, we have different groups that activate uh, these sites and these groups could be throughout the region. So it's not just, you know, who cultivates in six rivers here in our backyard is a group that's from the Eureka, Humboldt County area. Some folks that are cultivating are actually all the way down to the San Diego uh, uh, area, some all the way to the Washington, uh, the state of Washington. And then we have some in the Central Valley. And so these organizations are hitting, unfortunately, our public lands throughout the region in California. Uh, but there's, it's not centralized and localized. And it's not just one group. It's multiple groups that have these kind of uh, areas that they focus on and areas that they control that we as law enforcement investigations are actively disrupting because it's just not in uh, the best interest of anybody except this drug uh, trafficking organization. So Murad, I, I know that you've been studying the environmental impacts of this cannabis production, this trespass cannabis production for a number of years. This is, uh, I'm just guessing, probably about your 10th <laughs> published paper on, on the subject. I, I'm sure you can correct me if I'm high or low there, but you, you are one of the, the noted uh, experts on this subject. How did you become interested in the first place? What what turned you on to this as as a subject matter worth studying, worth investigation? You know, that's a great question, Tom. And the reason why I say this is I think there's this notion, um, unfortunately, that a lot of folks think that I dived into this because um, I've always had a, a uh, grievance with the plant itself. And, and, and that's could not be, uh, that is, it is going to be further from the truth. I'm a, a conservationist by heart. I'm conservationist um, in both my undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral work. And, and specifically, my emphasis has always been in wildlife health. And that's the health of the wildlife, the health of the habitats that they inhabit, and also this one health approach of the health of not just environment for wildlife, but also for humans and communities. And that health is the 
the understanding the threats from infectious agents, so let's just say rabies or COVID, or non-infectious agents like lead or pesticides. So what kind of brought this into was during my dissertation work was doing necropsies on fishers from 2006, seven on uh, until we had in 2010, a fisher die or 2009 or 10 was the fish, first fisher that died in the Southern Sierras from rodenticide toxicosis. So that's the ingestion of anticoagulant rodenticides, a type of pesticide and toxicosis is the lethal morba uh, mort uh, um, morbidity or mortality associated with that pesticide. So we had that individual die and then that kind of just opened up the gate where we looked at, hey, what is beyond this? What is, uh, where's the source point? And so digging at it deeper, what we thought was just gonna be a band-aid with a minor scratch that we can probably put some neosporin in and rectify it just to turn into this festering, oozing, uh, you know, carcinogenic uh, manifestation systemically through the environment. So it wasn't just in one area, it was in multiple areas. And that kind of just leapfrogged where one study led to the next study. So, you know, throwing a dart and sticking somewhere and wow, it, that's what we found. Is it in fissures? Yes. Where in fissures? Is it in this species or is it in that thing? And it just kind of leapfrogged from there. So my training and background is basically looking at wildlife and environmental health. And irregardless of the action, whether it's illegal timber harvesting or illegal pesticide applications, it's the health of the environment and the health of the wildlife. And therefore, me working with the, uh, with, within the Forest Service allows that also nexus to kind of branch out even further to look at this, not just within one forest, but regionally throughout all the forests in California and well, looking at that wildlife health. Yeah, so I, I imagine that that because the, the root source of this is cannabis farms, um, it, it both can probably be something that's useful to your research because it, it's something that can capture people's attention. Um, and I bet it could also be harmful uh, because then it gets politicized. You know, if this was coming from tomato farms or something, if we somehow had a, a market for really expensive tomatoes that were being grown on, on public lands, um, your interest in the subject matter would not have changed uh, because it was tomatoes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, that's, so. and that's the whole thing, Tom, is like the red herring arguments or the whataboutism, you know, that's an unfortunate circumstance. And like a lot of the, uh, um, uh, the blowback on this research where um, there is other groups that are performing research on other topics in other uh, uh, deleterious items on the environment. Our focus happens to be on public lands and the illegal use of these pesticides associated with an action. Uh, regardless of that, what the stem of that action, whether it's a cannabis plant or like you said, somebody growing strawberries illegally, it's irregardless of that. That's our, our driving force is uh, the protection and conservation of those lands and public lands. So Ivan, let's get to your most recent study, which was published in this year in the journal Water Quality Research Journal, uh, titled Passive Monitoring of Soluble Pesticides Linked to Cannabis Cultivation, a Multi-Scale Analysis. Um, let's, let's break down, what are you studying in this study? What are, what are, what is the, what's the world of this, the universe of this study? Right, uh, so great question. So essentially, you know, like we've been talking about, we know that there are pesticides applied on these sites. 
Uh, we know that there are a wide variety and type of pesticide that are applied at these sites. Uh, and due to a lot of the research by Dr. Gabriel and others over the last 10 years, you know, we've gotten, gotten a baseline understanding that these pesticides are, uh, you know, they're negatively impacting wildlife and fishers and owls. And we know that those, uh, those different biological communities are also transporting some of these pesticides offsite, you know, where they're able to contaminate other areas of the forest. So this study was basically kind of a logical, a logical step or logical progression where we wanted to start to look at, all right, well, we know that the biological communities are being affected by these, you know, does it extend to, you know, abiotic factors? Is it, um, do we find pesticides in our surface, in our surface waters? If we do, what types of pesticides are we finding? You know, are these pesticides being transported offsite by, you know, natural watershed processes and not just within the biological community? So that was kind of the main impetus for the study was to kind of get, lay down a foundation for whether or not these sites are contaminating surface waters within our national forests and our headwater streams. Ivan, how does one test for pesticides in a waterway? Like what, what are you doing to collect these samples? What sort of analyses do they go through for you to identify, oh yes, this is carbofurin and not like uh, bubble gum? It's a great question. Um, so what we use were devices are called Polar Organic Chemical Integrative Samplers. I'm just going to shorten that. Uh, we just call them POSIS. Uh, so what these are is this is a basically a stainless steel cage. And this cage has three discs in it uh, that have membranes with a, uh, like a, like a sorbent inside the membranes. And we, just, we deploy these in the streams, in running water, and we leave them for an extended period of time, usually about 30 days, between 30 to 45 days. Uh, so that's the passive portion of, of the sampling where we're deploying them and we're leaving them so that they can basically absorb any chemicals that are, that are passing through them in the waterways. And one of the reasons for this is a lot of these areas are in such remote and rural places and the variability of contaminants in water is so high that just going out and grabbing one sample or you know, going out and grabbing two samples, uh, it's not really sufficient to be able to uh, probably capture the high variability that you're gonna have. So deploying these things for an extended period of time, these POSIS devices, they're able to basically uh, accumulate the pesticides that are in that water so that we get a better understanding of what, it, what contaminants are in the water because you know, if it rains or if it's dry, you're gonna see different loads of those contaminants. And we're able to capture that full, that full suite of, uh, of flow environments using these. So after that, the, 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 the discs were removed and they were sent to the UC Davis um, California Animal Health and Food Safety Laboratory where they, were, they utilized a, a new technique that was developed there for this project, extracting, uh, extracting the sorbent and then basically running it through a, gas chromatograph uh, mass spectrometer to identify what, if any, uh, pesticides were present within, you know, within that disk. So um, can you talk about your, your sample sites? What were you trying to, were you trying to uh, go downstream of, of known trespass sites? Are you taking into account perhaps private cannabis that also might be in an area to, to compare the two impacts? Um, 
Yeah, go from, go from there, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, great question for this study. Um, you know, it is a, a multi-scale study, so there's two different components to the study. And one of the primary components was we were taking these trespass cannabis cultivation areas, they're known sites, we know that there's pesticides applied to them, and we're deploying one of these POSIS devices both above the site and below the site, immediately above and immediately below, so that we can attribute any, uh, any contaminants that we find in the water to, you know, specifically to that site. If we're getting it upstream, then it might, there might be another source, and we would have to look into that a little bit more. So that's you know the, the the first component. That's all on national forest land. Uh, we looked at 44 different independent trespass cannabis cultivation complexes for that. And within that, um, you know, we looked at we deployed these over a span of six years. Not all there's no site that we left it for six years at a time, but we you know over six years we had 44 different sites. And what we found was. Um, for the first rain season after the sites are eradicated or after law enforcement goes in and cuts all the plants out, 11% uh, of the downstream posted samplers tested positive for either carboferrin or diazinon, which are both very highly toxic pesticides to uh, fish, amphibians, uh, other types of you know, aquatic species that you would find in a lot of these sensitive headwater streams. So that was, that was very surprising for us. So very significant positive results there. Carbofurin, um, I, I think I know enough to know that that is extremely dangerous to humans too. We don't know necessarily the concentrations um, that uh, might be in a surface water at any time. Um, that wasn't part of the study, but carbofurin in very small amounts can kill very big things. Um, Murad, you probably have that kind of information ready at hand. How much? How much do I need to kill, like a lion or something like that? Right. Well, yeah. So um, even let's just go with the North American animals. So if we go with the uh, black bear, three hundred pound black bear, um, you know, we're talking about a quarter teaspoon or an eighth of a teaspoon that uh, we find in these concentrations that are out there, and we find liters of this material out there. So what I mean by that is two, three bottles. Some sites have had six bottles. Uh, so that's six liters of, of concentrated material. Uh, and as you mentioned, it is a band, uh, both in its EPA band uh, um, and uh, EU uh, uh, band in Canada. And it's specifically because of the, uh, the harmful impacts, not just an environment, but also if you apply it, uh, there's multiple cases where they've applied it. The products, food products were harvested, distributed to consumers, and the consumers then got sick or have died from the material because it did it, the material did it uh, like a potato, did not metabolize and make that uh, material inert. So that's that kind of environmental and human health risk. And just kind of going back to what, um, what Ivan was mentioning on his study, you know, going back to whether or not others, uh, cannabis production, legal cannabis production on private lands may have influenced. A lot of the sites that Ivan chose were sites where um, they're in the headwater. So they were a 100% and nothing above that could have been influencing these sites. Uh, and so it was, it was a nice uh, pinpoint and that the only source of contribution to this surface water contamination 
must have been the carbofurin or the diazinon applied at that cultivation site. So it was a really good kind of, that's that what I was mentioning. The dart was thrown and it stuck. Now we have surface water contamination that opens a, the gates for numerous subsequent studies. And not that people don't break the rules, but for legal cannabis production in California, these chemicals, um, almost all pesticides are prohibited from use. So uh, another kind of indicator that this is probably not coming from legal cannabis production uh, as well. Um, not a foolproof indicator, but uh, it's not legal, folks. So uh, <laughs> if there's any, well, no, I, I won't um, I won't riff on where to buy your weed or get your weed from. Uh, so this kind of adds to a growing body of research that um, that shows that this form of cannabis production is is worrisome. So, um, Murad, you talked previously about your wildlife studies. Can you talk a, a little bit more about those? What other evidence that we have uh, that toxicants from trespass cannabis production might pose a threat to uh, wildlife and potentially to human health? So yeah, so the so the original study was. Fishers. So fishers, both fishers in Northern California, where we have fishers that uh, were exposed to not one, but multiple different types of rodenticides present. Uh, and also in the Southern Sierras, where fishers are listed as federally endangered state and federally endangered. And we had those fishers that were exposed to numerous different types of rodenticides. Then we had another subsequent study to kind of investigate a little bit further and we show that we also had fishers that were not just being exposed or dying from anticoagulant rodenticides, but also the additional types of rodenticides that are being out there on the market. Cholecalciferol, which is a, a one that basically extracts the calcium from an individual and starts solidifying the, uh, the uh, vascular system and calcifying it to pretty much cause uh, kind of like a stroke issue. Uh, where you have this kind of vascular blockage. And then we have a decoupling, a neurotoxic and decoupling uh, rodenticide, bromethylin, that's also out there uh, that we found Fisher. So we didn't have just anticoagulant. We had two different types of rodenticides. So that's with Fishers. We looked at barred owls and spotted owls. So northern spotted owls, a federally listed species as well. We found them to be exposed. Um, recently, there was a study I, I contributed some data to where we looked at uh, some martins in the Oregon coast and a martin in the Oregon coast was exposed to rodenticides. And I believe that specific individual was also hit by a vehicle. Uh, so now that's that kind of um, egg or chicken. Did the rodenticide lead to some lethargy issues that exacerbated the vehicular strike? We don't know that, but we now have other species. Now it, it kind of opens that gate. Now we have these, 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 um, higher trophic level species. And if we look at us locally, does that mean, is it a potential risk to Humboldt Martins? It's unknown, but we do know that we have growth sites in those areas. In addition to that, with a recent reintroduction of California condors, we do know that we have large species such as deer and elk and bear that die from rodenticides or other types of pesticides. Now, the bear, deer or elk are not going to die right at that growth site, but they all move away from that growth site and they may die. And we found already, we've documented dead, dead bears or other wildlife with dead turkey vultures present right in the nearby vicinity. So we, we have to look at that, you know, we, we started piecing together 
the potential food web contamination that are occurring from these illegal sites. Um, and now that kind of builds that database where we now, and in Ivan's paper, built that database now. What does that mean to aquatic species? Aquatic wildlife, aquatic, which is herpetofauna, we have otters, salmonids, we have a whole bunch of different slew of, uh, of fisheries and wildlife that are dependent on these headwaters for us. And what does that mean? So it's, it's a great stepping stone for additional uh, research. So Ivan, um, IERC, the Integral Ecology Research Center, where you work, um, you are often on the ground researching uh, these grow sites. You work hand in glove with the Forest Service uh, to do site remediation. Um, in your opinion, are these grow sites, are they the same kind of problem that they are today as they were um, when Dr. Gabriel started this research? Which I guess, am I saying, is this problem becoming less severe? Are, are we having the same number of grow sites um, in your estimation based on your work, um, given you know, changes in the cannabis economy, legalization in our state and in other states? Um, should we be worried for, for this problem in the future? Thanks, Tom. Well, there was a, a lot to unpack there. Yeah, that sorry. <laughs> uh, that was very, very wide reaching. Uh, what I will say is that the sites that we are documenting, we are not seeing any decreases in the scope of the environmental impacts on these sites. We're not seeing decreases in the amount of pesticides that are being applied or the, uh, the, you know, the areas that are being cleared out or the quantity of cannabis that's on one of these, uh, these, these cultivation sites. So, you know, from that perspective, yes, these sites are still very much a concern. Um, you know, we're still trying to even piece together what is the broad, you know, cumulative watershed landscape scale threat that these sites pose. And, you know, this water quality study is kind of a foundational piece to that because as you know, Dr. Gabriel is talking about his work with, with fishers and with owls, you know, this is just another, another piece in the puzzle for us to fully understand the, uh, you know, the risks that these sites pose to all of our public lands. You know, this is not somebody's backyard that they're paying for. You know, this is land that you and I and everybody listening, we all you know, co-own. Uh, you know, that's all a piece of ours. And basically somebody else is, uh, you know, you know they're making money off of degrading our resource. That's pretty awful. Um, Dr. Gabriel, so even if we see a decline in the number of future grow sites, we still have a problem of the historic number of grow sites, some of which have been remediated where we've gotten the, the chemicals off the landscape. Some have been partially remediated where they've been put in a more kind of stable, less uh, at risk uh, configuration on the landscape. Um, how, you know, are, are, are past grow sites still a problem? How long do these um, do these toxicants kind of exist in our environment? Yeah, so how long do they exist in our environment? Well, one of the things that, let's say in the water study, you could see where the last, last application was close to a year and a half, and then we still see that the, the pesticide carbofurin 
being detected a year and a half since the last application. So we, we have some metrics where we know that it's not just application on day one and then day two, it's all gone. And that's not, um, uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. So that's what, you know, what we're doing with the Forest Service is one of our, our active roles is to go to these historical sites. So all the sites that we, we, we know that are actively getting hit, like we've, we found it on Six Rivers National Forest this summer, it was disrupted, the plants were eradicated, the hazmat was mitigated, and then our next role is to remove the hazardous material. That's our first priority, remove that hazardous material off the site. Now there is still trash and pipes there, but the most immediate threat is the hazardous material. So, but then we have this historical backlog to go back to, because as you know, and, and your listeners and everybody else knows that a plastic container in an environment doesn't stays, you know, can be stable for years uh, or decades. And what we're trying to do is then get to those locations to mitigate and remove those ASAP so that one, the wildlife doesn't encounter it or it spills over to pose an environmental health risk. So um, the longevity of this, uh, I think it's that answer still has not been addressed. Like how long after application are we seeing the contamination? I, I, you know, those are great answers. We don't have the, the strong enough empirical data to say at year five, it's all gone. I, I think we still need to investigate that because unfortunately the other aspect of it too is the data that's out there, EPA generated or research generated data is what is considered legal use of that pesticide. So if I take one bottle of carbofurin, that one bottle of carbofurin is supposed to be reconstituted in a thousand to up to 10,000 gallons. So when somebody puts that one bottle of carbofurin into a three gallon pump sprayer and sprays the soil, nobody had that data. Oh goodness. Um, and I imagine that this is a a priority for the Forest Service, but one that probably isn't terribly well funded. Knowing um, knowing how we fund the Forest Service generally, um, it is uh, underfunded, and this is you know not within its kind of normal operations. Um, so, any any idea of, of what we could do to speed up the remediation of these sites to increase uh, the eradication of them to to break them up sooner and to ensure that. Uh, we we stem uh, trespass growing on our public lands. What what can be done? So one of the things I really encourage folks to do is most of our sites. So we do aerial reconnaissance. We don't do these different types of detections. We're trying to find these sites before the cultivators put the pesticides out there. That's our number one goal. So it's not waiting till the plants. We do not as as an agency. It's not about how many plants we cut down, absolutely not. It's how many sites we hit and disrupt and remove the pesticides before they're applied out there. That's our number one priority. So that's, unfortunately, you're not gonna find each and every site out there. So what we really depend on is when the public goes and recreates and they find a piece of pipe or a piece of trash that's out of the ordinary, a hunter, recreator, we always ask to report that 
because then we can act upon that and go back out to those those locations. And the majority of our sites nowadays are reported by the public where a hunter, a mushroom gatherer says, hey, I ran into some irrigation lines uh, in the middle of nowhere. And then we investigate. And what helps us to do that is that we go to these sites and we're like, geez, there's a couple bottles of X, Y, or Z that we can now mitigate and remove. But if we didn't get this reported, it would have, you know, could have spilled into the environment, the surface waters, and at least that level. So that's one of big helpful that I always ask the public is even if you know it's not supposed to be out there, let us know so that we can act upon it. Because it's not about, and it can be anonymous, that it's not about the plants itself. It's us to get rid of these pesticides and these water diversions ASAP. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, unfortunately, we are at the end of today's show. I will have a link to the study passive monitoring of soluble pesticides linked to cannabis cultivation, a multi-scale analysis in the uh, Lost Coast Outpost, where all our episodes are hosted. So go to thelostcoastoutpost.com and you'll find a link there. Thank you so much, Dr. Gabriel and uh, and Ivan for, for joining today's show. Thanks for having us all. Thanks for the invitation. All right. Join us again on this time channel next week for more environmental news from the North Coast of California.